Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Arsenal Women Arsecast on Arsblog.com, the best podcast about the Arsenal women's team because it's the only podcast dedicated solely to the Arsenal women's team. And this month we're going to take a little look back at Arsenal ladies' dominance circa roughly mid-90s until about 2012 when Arsenal won pretty much every trophy going uh, several times in that period. I think they won 14 out of 19 available league titles between 1994 and 2012. Um, about 11, 12 FA Cups in that time, 11 League Cups. Um, and of course, they became the first and at time of recording, the only British team to win the Champions League in 2007 in their legendary quadruple winning season, um, beating Umea in the final back in April 2007. Um, and with me to discuss this glorious period in Arsenal ladies slash women's history, um, first of all, we're joined by Rich Laverty, who many of you know as um, a preeminent women's football journalist. Rich recently wrote a piece in a These Football Times Arsenal Special Edition magazine, um, which, which I really recommend, by the way. Lots of really great cover-to-cover articles about Arsenal from the 1930s right up to the present day. But Rich wrote um, a kind of a long read on Arsenal ladies' dominance uh, for about 15, 20 years there um, until the creation of the WSL. And Rich and I kind of discuss Arsenal ladies in that period, particularly in the 90s under Vic Akers, um, some of their rivals um, at the time, some of the teams who kind of took a swing for the crown um, and tried to end Arsenal's dominance, uh, particularly Fulham, who briefly went professional at the beginning of the 21st century. Um, and we just discuss why it was that Arsenal blazed such a trail for, for women's football um, in the 90s and why they were the biggest and best team and why they exerted this dominance. Um, and then later on in the show, we're joined, we're joined rather by uh, another women's football journalist, Catherine Ito, who writes for She Kicks magazine. Catherine's been covering the women's game um, in the UK for just over 20 years now um, and she covered Arsenal a lot in particular in the kind of early part of the 21st century and saw a lot of their dominance and uh, in particular Catherine covered both legs of that 2007 UEFA Cup final against Umea um, the first leg in Sweden and the second leg at Boreham Wood and we talk about that quadruple winning team and the special players that, that kind of came together at that time and characters like Katie Chapman and Karen Carney and Rachel Yankee and Kelly Smith and even Emma Hayes who was on the coaching staff when Arsenal won that quadruple and lots of massive big ticket names from English women's football that maybe people who've only started following in the last few years might not even realise played for Arsenal. 
and so we have you know we have a nice little retrospective on on Arsenal's dominance um, in women's football and at the time of recording of course they're still the champions of England that might change in the next week or so if and when the WSL season is cancelled but um, I, I really wanted to do an episode looking back at this period in Arsenal's history because I think it's a great source of pride not just if you're an Arsenal women fan but if you're an Arsenal fan I think it's a huge source of pride that Arsenal were you know one of the first clubs to really really put serious thought and serious investment into the women's game and I, and I think it's a period of history that should really be brought out and celebrated particularly because so little footage exists um, of these great teams and these great players and I, I really feel um, you know a responsibility to try and relay some of that so we'll hear from Rich and Catherine presently also on the show we have uh, Arsenal defender midfielder um, Katie McCabe Katie will be uh, featuring on this month's edition of Teammates, so I'll ask her lots of silly questions about who she, who of her teammates she thinks would make the best Prime Minister, who swears the most, who would be the best in a fight, things like that. So really, really grateful uh, to Katie for her time. Um, and yeah, and that, that's this month's episode, and, and I really hope you enjoy it, and, and, and I really hope you kind of absorb... Um, you know the greatness of of Arsenal ladies in this period, um, in what was a very different period for English football. But um, yeah, I, I really hope you get a sense for how much of a trailblazer Arsenal was and is for women's football in England. Joining us now on the Arsenal Women Askcast, we're going to talk about Arsenal ladies, uh, give or take 20 years of domestic dominance, circa, let's say 1993 till about 2013, with women's football journalist Rich Laverty. Rich, thanks so much for joining the show today. No worries, mate. Happy to be on. And uh, before we get to the subject at hand, Rich, um, perhaps uh, you could just tell us a little bit about your kind of, I guess, your journey into women's football, because... Um, obviously, you do a lot of writing and reporting on women's football. You do you still have a role with Sheffield United um, as well? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, yeah, my my attachment to the women's game doesn't go back quite as long as Arsenal dominance. Um, but I, I was probably coming into it just at the end of that. To be to be fair, to admit it's my fault. But uh, <laughs> we'll blame yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So yeah, I, I kind of first got involved very little at the, at the very start of the WSL era. It wasn't really until probably 2014 when Man City came into it. I did a lot of work, obviously, as a, a Northern-based reporter around Manchester City, and, and I was at their launch day, and I was at a lot of their games, and it just went from there, really. Um, got a few freelance gigs and ended up, you know, what you didn't realise was how quickly you could actually rise to the top because there were so few people really covering the women's game. And, you know, before I knew it, I was doing FA Cup finals, Conti Cup finals, which which Arsenal were in a lot of both, um, even under Pedro Loso when I first came into it. So, and then, and then it's gone from there. Yeah, you know, obviously doing the, the Euros and the World Cup. And yeah, it's um, it's been a bit of a whirlwind, really. And what's your current role with um, Sheffield United? Yeah, so I do our, I mean, I'm still technically freelance in terms of they allow me to write outside of my work with Sheffield United, which is a an interesting balance sometimes. Obviously, you have to be quite careful around certain topics and subjects. You know, I try and avoid the championship, um, really, because I don't think I'm biased, but I just think it's probably better to stay clear of, of any kind of topic around that. Um mm-hmm. 
But yeah, I basically do our our media and social media. It's probably more the social media and website side because the media requirements for the championships not massive. You know, we we do a bit of local media um, from time to time, and mm. it 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 got big around the Manchester City game when we played them in the Conti Cup this year, and, and obviously the Aston Villa league match just before, which was three days before that. Apart from that, really. It's quite quiet. Um, it's really running the social media channels and, and working with the team and the players. And it's been a really nice experience for the last two seasons to actually see the other side of it, I suppose, you know, um, from the PR side of things. So it's, it's been an interesting balance, but I've enjoyed it. And uh, usually I, I don't like to date these podcasts too much, but at the time of um, recording, and I think certainly by the time this goes out, it will probably be confirmed that the WSL and championship um, seasons will be cancelled uh, for this season with um, a final table to be determined by some method or other. Do, do you think that's the correct call? I think it's got to the point where it's the only call, to be honest. I, I think now that the stark realities of how much it will cost and, you know, in terms of the testing and it might be viable for some teams, you know, the, the likes of Arsenal and the likes of Manchester City and Chelsea. But, you know, for teams in the championship, uh, it's just not, you know, they can't spend hundreds of thousands on, on testing their players two, three times a week. And it's just not viable. So I think it was an inevitability. Maybe it's taken a bit longer than we would have liked to get here. And I think now, obviously, the big question is, I don't think it's so much ending it. I think it's now how we end it, of course, mm. because most leagues are doing points per game, which really doesn't affect either league. I think in the championship, the, the seventh and eighth place teams swap around and, and most of mm. the WSL remains the same. But the problem is, of course, the only two positions it really affects are the top two in the WSL um, because Chelsea would go with Manchester City. So I think that will be the big sticking point and then obviously there'll be arguments around promotion and relegation and you know some teams are probably going to be left unhappy but there's mm. nothing you can do I, I don't think there's an ideal scenario where you're going to please everybody no I agree and, and possibly one of the teams will be unhappy is, is Arsenal but um, I, I mean even speaking from my incredibly one-eyed biased point of view I tend to think once the top three have all played each other um, mm. That that's a fairly good indicator of how the table's going to turn out and Arsenal basically end up third, whichever way you slice it. Um, and as, as much as as much as I don't like it, I, I don't think it's it's enormously unfair. I mean, I think also, I think it's worth pointing out the calendar as well, right? Because with the tournaments being pushed back, the women's calendar, particularly at you know, the elite level, is about to get very, very compact. Mm. And yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, go on. Yeah, I was going to say, like, just squeezing in the end of this season, I think even if the resources existed, which I don't think they do, you know, with, with like, we've basically got, what, five summers in a row, effectively, four summers in a row <laughs> yeah. of tournament football. I mean, you know, I, I think there is going to come a time where you just have to say, look, just take the next couple of months off and we'll see what we can do next season. Um, yeah, and I, I think that is what will happen and hopefully we can start next season is normal obviously we talk about Champions League places I mean we don't even know when if and when the Champions League will restart and whether there'll be one next season obviously with the, the international travel restrictions so I think domestic matters have to take um, priority for now definitely yeah big time um, so let, let's move on to the subject at hand then um, 
So from 1993 until 2013, Arsenal ladies won 14 league titles, 12 FA Cups, 13 League Cups and the European Cup in a period of 20 years, which is not bad going um, and obviously made them the dominant force domestically for quite a long time. Um, now, you wrote a really good piece about this in, uh, in these Football Times recently, the, the most recent issue, which is an Arsenal special. Um, why was it that Arsenal were so much stronger than all of their domestic rivals in this kind of 15 to 20 year period in your view? I think they were just doing things that other teams weren't. And, and it's really fascinating now looking back through history when there's there's always been a point where one team has come along and said, do you know what? We want to do that. We want to emulate that. And I think back to, again, when I said I came into the WSL and I think it was Liverpool, you know, who basically were the first ones to say, we've had enough of Arsenal, you know, because even that dominance went on into the first two years of the WSL and, you know, no one was written. Manchester City were just about to come into it. Chelsea were very much bottom half uh, team, as were Liverpool. And it was kind of the it was the Everton's and the Birmingham's that were that were challenging Arsenal. And actually, you know, Liverpool were the ones to say, you know, we want to do this, and they they ploughed a lot of money in, and, and Arsenal kind of fell behind. And I think that's roughly how it began. You know, back then it was teams like Millwall and teams like Fulham and, and Charlton, and and Arsenal just came along and. They just changed the game. You know, Vic Akers obviously built things from the ground up almost. You know, he recruited local players, you know, from from, from the area around places like Lewisham and, and Highbury, obviously. And they just, they put a lot into it at the time, you know, in terms of facilities, in terms of, you know, the, the fitness side of things, nutrition. And we always talk about Arsene Wenger and how he changed a lot of that when he came over for the men's team in terms of, mm doing things that now seem very ordinary, but at the time were kind of revolutionary and, and no other teams were doing it. And I think that's just what Arsenal got right and not to demean any of their achievements, but it was kind of, as long as you were willing to outperform and, and out-resource the teams around you, it was quite easy at that time to kind of mm. go on that run because no other team was was willing to do it or could do it. And Arsenal, obviously, a big name anyway, you know, bigger name than a Fulham or a Charlton or a Millwall, um, you know, we're able to just dominate for so long. And I think, you know, once you get that grounding and you get those local players and you start to get that dominance, that's when you then start to get your Marianne Spaces, your Emma Burns, your Faye White, your Kelly Smiths, because once you've reached the top of the game, you continue to stay. It's like Leon now. And I think, you know, we're going to probably talk about Leon. Once you get there, all the top players want to come and play for you. And, and it's just a constant, absolute, you know, onslaught of dominance that lasted, you know, like you said, for, for 10, 20 years until another team comes along and says, you know what, we like, we like the look of that. We're going to do the same. And obviously, um, touching on Vic Akers right from the beginning, who, who more or less um, set up the Arsenal ladies team um, in the late 80s. But, you know, he was he was and you touch on this in your piece as well, he was quite creative, you know, because obviously this is an era when he started, when it wasn't even amateur, really. Nobody was paid, um, full stop. And, uh, you know, perhaps uh, could you just explain to us some of the kind of creative ways that he got players into the club? Yeah, I think it was... I think Vic was just... He was so good at, at selling it to the players. And I think when you go along to talk to players and 
and you're saying, look, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and you also have the results to back it up. You know, Arsenal came in and I think they, they won the, the Southern League as it was then at the first attempt and they actually won the League Cup as well. And then they went into the Premiership, you know, won 17 out of 18 games, won the league, won the FA Cup as well for the first time, won the league, you know, their first season at the top level and they won the treble. You know, it was mm. incredible achievement and I still don't think they've ever come lower than third, even into the WSL era now. So, you know, after a few years, I think, it, you know, it, it sold itself. Um, you know, they had the the facilities, they had Meadow Park, you know, which they still play at to this day, you know, that they've, they've almost been a constant in terms of where they've played, sharing with Boreham Wood and, you know, they just approached every aspect of the game. You know, they raised the training, they raised the tactics, they had scouts, you know, that they actually had people out there looking at players. And, you know, when you get then to that point, like I said, of being able to bring in Kelly Smith, Rachel Yankee, you know, Alex Scott, you know, Alex Scott and Kelly Smith came back from America, which, you know, was has always been a thriving nation, as we know. And, and you know, they came back to play for Arsenal. And I think, scouting up, you know, in Scotland, obviously, getting someone like Julie Fleeting. I mean, Julie Fleeting was an absolute legend. And you read about her story. And, and actually, when I was doing this article, I researched Julie Fleeting a lot because she was such a, a pivotal player that maybe some people don't know. You, like, modern-day fans will have heard of Kelly Smith and Rachel Yankee and, and Alex Scott and Faye White. But, you know, Julie Fleeting, she was so sold on Arsenal's project that she actually stayed in Scotland. She had her job up there. She never trained with the team. She flew to London on a Sunday morning. Vic Akers picked her up, drove her to the game. She usually scored a goal. And then she <laughs> flew back to Scotland on the Sunday night and was working up there again the whole week. You know, she never... But that's how good that project was. And now, obviously, that would be unthinkable. But she did that for her whole Arsenal career. And it was absolutely staggering, the amount of dedication players would put into a project but when you're getting something back and you know the club is supporting you in those ways you know players are going to do that yeah and Julie Fleeting as well she also earned the distinction of scoring in a cup final I think the day after she scored four goals for Scotland so yeah, she, she, she yeah she played for Scotland I think on the Saturday and then uh, or maybe the Friday and then came to the cup final the next day and, and, and scored for Arsenal there and, uh, and, and yeah, I, th I think you're really right to point out um, the scouting around Britain. Obviously, it wasn't global at that point, but Arsenal had, you know, Jane Ludlow, the captain of Wales. They had, like, Ireland's best players in the likes of Emma Byrne and Kira Grant and, and Scotland as well. And, and some of the ways that Vic scouted players. Um, he, you know, do you know he saw Emma Byrne playing Gaelic football? Um, yeah and said you look like you'd make a decent goalkeeper and that's how she was how she was found um but another and i'm really pleased you picked up on julie fleeting because i think you're right i think she's quite unfortunate that her career kind of ended just as the wsl came round, and she so she doesn't quite have the same reputation but i can't talk about arsenal's dominance um through this kind of decade and a half two decades without talking about Kelly Smith who as you say kind of went backwards and forwards between the States and North London but in terms of um, not just in England but in terms of like women's football history globally where do you think Kelly Smith uh, stands in terms of uh, in terms of her reputation and influence? I think in terms of England and, and probably the UK I think she is the number one and I think what was so 
good about Kelly. I always think, and I wrote a piece about Arsenal actually as a team last season when they won the league, and I said what actually made Arsenal's title win last season so special was they actually made it look really easy. Like They played really good football, but they did it in such a simple way that you know, even when they had injuries, they were winning 3-4-0. And I think Kelly was the same. Like it was, When you watched, and I never saw Kelly Smith at a peak, but when you watched her, she could do something and you thought, she's just made that look really, really easy. And it probably wasn't. And I was honoured to actually see Kelly's last ever goal. And I've got a feeling you might have been there as well. I was, yes. Yeah, so I was just in front of you. <laughs> yeah, and she, she, you know, she, I think it was like 4-0, so whether she would have tried it at 0-0, I don't know, but... You know, she's picked the ball up on, you know, 30 yards out, no back lift, almost like she's walking up to a free kick. And she's just chipped it over everybody in off the crossbar. And I think that to be her last goal summed Kelly Smith up so much. And I think as well, you know, her story and what she's been through, you know, she's been very open about, you know, some of the mental health issues that she had. And, you know, to come through all that and like you say, come back from America with injuries and, and drinking problems and come back to Arsenal and do what she did. Obviously, two spells, you know, over 100 caps for England, top scorer ever, you know, won everything there was to win, played for Team GB. I just think, I think if you asked anyone in England, who do you think of when you think about women's football in terms of the last 20 years, I think 90% of them would say Kelly Smith. And I think that is... I think it almost gets lost. I always think a bit like David Beckham, for example. You know, people mm. almost forget David Beckham was a footballer. Mm. You know, they almost have this aura and this legend around them. And I think it's such a shame. And I, I think back to probably Arsenal teams, but also England teams. And I look back at Kelly Smith and, and Yanks and, and Sue Smith and Faye White. And I think, you know, what could that team, that Arsenal team, but also that England team have mm. done with everything that players today have available, all the S&C and the nutrition and the full-time training, I just think it would have actually been scary to see how good they would have been. And I, I do genuinely think the only player that matches Kelly in terms of outright talent is Marta. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't think... Birgit Prims maybe, um, but I just don't think there's many, many others. I think Kelly was just so good at making things look so easy. Yeah, and um, Kelly had a because obviously Kelly was playing in the US as well, and she was coming back to play for England, and she had that um, that very famous quote where she said, I, "I think this was kind of early two thousands, and she just said, women's football in England is a joke." Um, because she'd been in the US and seen how it, how it was done properly. And, and yeah, I think you're right. You know, you look at even the England team of 2011, um, which which kind of went out on penalties, as England tend to do. But I think you're right. I think in this era, that team um, might have really done something. Um, but kind of bringing it back to Arsenal, um, you, you mentioned that a, a few teams had a nibble at Arsenal in this period. Donny Bells had a really good go. Um, Charlton um, had a really good go as well until their men's team was relegated. Um, Everton as well. But one team did eat into Arsenal's dominance a little bit at the, in the early 21st century um, for a couple of years, and that was Fulham. Can you um, perhaps just explain for our listeners uh, what happened with Fulham in the early 20th century and why, um, I guess, their kind of mini period of dominance was so short-lived? Yeah, you know, Fulham was one of those stories that it was such a shame that it had to go the way it did. And it was a little bit the same with Charlton because 
they were such good teams, you know. They were, you know, FA Cup winners. They were league winners. And, you know, people forget people like Rachel Yankee, you know, actually played for Fulham. And they were just, they were, again, like I said, they were one of those teams that, that were willing to do something different. You know, they were willing to push the boundaries and in a time where there weren't too many teams doing it. They, you know, they even, we talk about Arsenal bringing in British players, you know, the, the staff that weren't there, people like Keith Bonas and, and, and others that, they brought in, you know, foreign managers. They brought in foreign players. You know, they had Norwegian players. And, you know, again, I say like I did with Arsenal, they were doing things that the other teams weren't essentially. You know, they came, you know, they were they were competing in Europe. They were competing, you know, for FA Cups. And then, you know, it just as so often happens, unfortunately, the support went, I think it was 2005, it might have been 2006, um, they reverted to semi-pro, you know, their players started to leave and then after that, you know, I think it was 2006 when they basically discontinued the team altogether and I think they still have a development centre but, you know, they, they've basically gone altogether now, you know, we, we've mm. not heard, we've not heard the full of name, um, you know, women's football for quite a long time which is, it's such a shame and, like I said, the same with Charlton um, to an extent. and But it happens, you know, it happens in cycles and, and other teams come and, and overtake you because they see they see what you're doing and they think, I want a piece of that, you know. And after that, it was kind of Birmingham and it was Everton. And then once they'd had their moment, like I said, Liverpool came along and, and obviously now Chelsea, Manchester City and, and probably to an extent Manchester United in the future as well. So... Yeah, it was a huge shame because, you know, they had the likes, like I said, Rachel Yankee and, and Katie Chapman, you know, another absolute Arsenal legend and for me one of the best English players ever, Katie Chapman. I don't think yep. she gets anywhere near the amount of attention that she should. She certainly never got the England caps that she should. Um, but yeah, it was just one of those, you know, stories that unfortunately, like too many teams really over the last 20 years had a, a sad ending. Yeah, and I, I mean, I was at the, um, I think it was 2002 FA Cup final, which was between Arsenal and Fulham. And, and as you say, they'd taken Rachel Yankee and they had Katie Chapman, they had this great team. And I just remember it being a really weird feeling because Arsenal were in another cup final, which I was very used to, but um, they were the underdogs and Arsenal scrapped out a 1-0 win and a very young Emma Byrne saved a penalty in that game. And um, it, was, it, was a, it was a very, very odd feeling <laughs> for Arsenal to win the FA Cup, um, in women, like win the women's FA Cup as rank underdogs. That was a, that was a very, yeah. very peculiar feeling. Um, you know, we, we've, we've spoken a little bit about, you know, the likes of Julie Fleeting. We've touched on um, Kelly Smith and Rachel Yankee. Who were who some other players... Um, kind of during this 10 to 15 year period who who were really crucial to Arsenal's dominance? Yeah, I, I think what a lot of people don't also realise with Arsenal, the amount of players that have actually been there that you forget about. Like when you tell people now like Ellen White played for Arsenal, you know, to mm-hmm. modern day fans who associate her with, you know, Notts County, Birmingham, you know, now obviously Manchester City. But I think Leanne Sanderson, you know, yep. Her Twice. goal scoring record oh was absolutely unbelievable. I think she came in her first season, scored forty goals, and I think the next season she scored even fifty something, I think it was, which was just ridiculous, you know, and that was the that was the treble uh, sorry, the quadruple winning season. Um people again forget actually like Leanne Sanderson now is almost associated with, you know, some of the off the field stories in the last few years. 
Um, but she was an absolute phenomenal striker. And obviously, you know, Kim Little, you can't not talk about Kim Little. And again, people see Kim Little now and think, wow, what a player. But where she was, you know, 10 years ago was probably 10 levels above where she is now in terms of her importance. You know, people didn't see Faye White, you know, what a captain she was, what a leader she was at the back, you know, Jane Ludlow, you know, Jane Ludlow's got so many goals from midfield. And, and you talk to people now and they just say, oh, yeah, she's the Wales manager. You know, people never mention, oh, she was this absolute, you know, I wrote a piece actually the other week, you might have seen about Everton beating Arsenal in the FA yep. Cup final. And, and Jane Ludlow missed that game because she was suspended. And, you know, there's no doubt that had a big influence because she was such a big player in the middle of that field. And, yeah, it's it's crazy now you look at the amount of people that play for Arsenal and where they are now and you actually talk to people about them and they almost know them more for something else because probably the records aren't there and the videos aren't there that mm. you know people don't associate players like Jane Ludlow anymore and even Alex Scott you know Alex will always go down you know as one of the best fullbacks ever and you know modern day fans are more used to Lucy Bronze but you know Alex she scored a lot of goals she was a fantastic defender she obviously scored the goal in the European Cup final um which was a very Lucy Bronze-esque strike for anyone mm-hmm. that probably is more familiar to modern goals and the goal Lucy scored against Norway. I think it's almost actually scarily similar to the one Alex Scott scored um, against Umea. And there's just so many legends that, that almost are that. They've become a legend. You know, it, It's almost like a myth when you talk to people about them because they don't actually really know what these players achieved and, and what they did because, unfortunately, the footage of league games and cup games is just so lacking and it's a real shame because you know if you've been a top class footballer in England over the last 10-20 years you probably played for Arsenal at some point yeah the the name that um, was kind of ringing around my head while you were talking there was Karen Carney um, yeah. a lot of people wouldn't know that Karen Carney played for Arsenal and I remember she played in Euro 2005 which was hosted in England and she was I think she'd done her GCSEs that summer or something and then went and played for England and took the tournament by storm. And she wasn't at Arsenal at the time, but, um, you know, you talk about Arsenal's stature. As soon as she had that tournament, she went to Arsenal because that's what Arsenal were. They were almost like, you know, a bit like Manchester United, I guess, in the 90s in men's football. It was just if there was a good English player... Arsenal would probably take them and Karen Carney you know was part of that quadruple winning team and then she went off to America and came back and yeah a lot a lot of people probably don't realize she has such a big history um with with, with Arsenal um you know we touched on there a little bit about kind of the quadruple winning team and winning the European Cup and um we're going to go into depth for that later with our with our second guest but um uh, at the, t- at the time of recording, anyway, um, as I'm fond of reminding people, Arsenal are still the only British side to win the Champions League. That That's not going to last forever, um, I don't think. How long do you think it will be before a WSL side, whether that's Arsenal, Manchester City or Chelsea, um, can take it from Lyon? Uh, I think it's almost more dependent on what happens to Lyon more than almost what our club's doing. And again, maybe this links back to what I've just said about Arsenal and the fact that, that you are there to be shot at when you're at the top and teams want to do what you're doing. And 
I think it is going to close up. I mean, even look at what PSG are doing. And, you know, this was probably ironically the closest PSG were coming to winning the league. You know, they were three points behind Lyon. They had them to play at home. And, and obviously the league has been has been cancelled. But, you know, they're putting serious money in. I mean, the contract they've just put um, Diani on is absolutely huge. And, you know, Chelsea was so close last season, um, you know, to really... Troubling Leon, you got Barcelona now, obviously putting big money and signing top players, but it's almost going to be a combination of yes, other teams have to spend, but they they need to rely on on Leon almost falling apart because they have you know almost a world class player in every position. But obviously now it looks like Marajan is going to leave, Buhadi is going to leave, Lucy Bronze is going to leave, Alex Greenwood, um, you know. The amount of players they also have contract next year, players like Hegerberg, players like Henri, you know, Wendy Renard has talked about potentially leaving <clears throat> in the future. So if that happens, like I said, Leon will be in that position that, that Arsenal were in that they can still get top players because they're Leon, you know, mm. for no other reason than players will look at and say, Yeah, do you know what? I want to go to Leon still. But actually, this would be the first time in a few years this team has been broken up. And I think it's actually a real shame we're not going to see the conclusion or we might not see the conclusion in normal circumstances of this season's Champions League because I don't think it would have been plain sailing for them. But I think next year, you know, without some of those key players, it's going to be a case of, right, you know, Chelsea, Man City, you know, Barcelona, Wolfsburg, mm. they're not going to have a better chance to take it to Lyon when they're losing these key players. So I hope an English team does it. Obviously, it has always been Lyon in the way, you know, they're not Chelsea out the semi-finals last year and they're not Man City out the two years before that. So I think you have to look at Chelsea, don't you? And the international talent that they now have and, and how close they came last year. And, you know, they've added Sam Kerr to that now too. So I still think, you know, someone like a Barcelona might be better equipped moving forward, just the amount, you know, incredibly technical players the Spanish teams have. But I think if you... If you were going to put money on an English team to do it, I think right now you would look at Chelsea. Yeah, yeah. And I've watched um, a fair bit of Barca this season because they, they've been flouting um, the broadcast rules and, and showing their games on Facebook, which I've been mm. very grateful for. And they, I mean, that front three they've got in particular is formidable. And I, I actually fancied them to do it this year. I mean, I, I guess in closing, just kind of staying with Leon, do you think that they've got an issue in terms of... I get the impression from afar it's a club where players just park themselves for a couple of years um, because they kind of think, yeah, I'll go there for two to three years. I'll win the Champions League. But there isn't really, you know, so I can get my Champions League medal and then I'll go somewhere I really want to go. That's that's the kind of culture it looks like they've got to me from the outside. And I think that might be why their team's breaking up. What do you think on that? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I've heard players, particularly the England players, talk about the culture at Leon and how it's almost too professional in a way. Like they don't really, they don't massively socialise or anything like that. They sort of go to training, they go to the games, they win and they go home again. You know, they, they don't have this huge team spirit that, you know, we're so big at talking about in England. You know, it's all about team spirit, team spirit. Um Leon don't really have that. They just have such good players that they can turn up, they do their job, and that's it. They win most of the time. And, 
Yeah, I think you're right. Almost like particularly the English players now, the, the, the Lucy Bronzes, the, the Parises, the Greenwoods, you know, particularly those two that went from Man City that, you know, had those two semi-final defeats. They probably thought, you know what, the only way I'm going to get a Champions League medal is actually going there. Mm. Um, and look, obviously you have to be good enough to be signed. You know, you can't offer yourself to so them. Leon have to sign you and they obviously took the decision that, that Bronze and Paris and, and Greenwood and Christensen were, were good enough to, to get into their squad. And I think the important thing for them was they did similar to Arsenal. They they cherry-picked that best young French talent at the start. You know, Wendy Renard's been there since she was 18, 19. So has Amandine Henri. And those players are always a bit more loyal. You know, they're local, they're French. You know, they haven't got a huge reason to go anywhere else. Um, same with Le Sommaire. But I think now almost those players are getting to a point where they think we've done everything now you know we've won the champions league three four times and mm. you're now seeing the marijans and and the buhadis and you know maybe in the future certain other players as well think do you know what what's there left for me here you know and i think that's what is going to be the most important thing for leon is how can they keep that team not just fresh but they have to keep it you know, at the top level and, and which players can they get, you know, to keep them at the top level. So I think the next couple of years watching how that Leon team develops is going to be really interesting. And I don't think, I think other teams have to capitalise now before they actually get a, a settled team again, because it will be world-class. They will find top players, you know. I don't think they're just going to go away. Mm. They'll still be there, but they might not necessarily be as dominant. But I think the next couple of years is going to be the best opportunity for a Chelsea, for a Barcelona, for a Man City to finally get that Champions League. Yeah, and and I suppose kind of coming full circle, that's that's kind of what happened to Arsenal really um, at, at the end of their absolute dominance. You know, they they kind of um, they had some equals um, that developed in in Chelsea and Manchester City and Liverpool for a while, and and I think Manchester United will come into that bracket in the next couple of years, but um, they didn't go away. Um, I, I think you're right. I think Leon will do something similar. They'll be kind of maybe first among equals rather than um, you know this just absolute standalone behemoth. Um, Rich, I've taken far more of your time than I said I would already. Um, really, really enjoyed that chat. Thank you so much for your time. Not a problem, Matt. Thank you for having me on. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, so Katie McCabe, 20 quickfire questions about your teammates. First off, who's the best dressed? Uh, who's the best dressed? Um... I'm gonna I'm gonna say Leah, Leah Williamson because she yeah she's our, our little fashionista. Um, don't get me wrong, she comes in with some crazy stuff. Uh, <laughs> I've seen flared jeans, flared I, I don't know, but I'm gonna go uh, yeah I'm gonna go Leah, Leah Williamson. Okay, interesting because I asked Leah and Leah said Leah, so um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's two nil on that one. Um, there you go. There you go. Who's the worst dress then? Oh, this this is harsh. Um, no one springs to mind. I think everyone's just got their own little, their own little. Um, let me think. Let me think. No, no one's springing to mind. I'm gonna I'm gonna say no one for that one, just because I'm nice and everyone okay. has their own little individual uh, fashionista. Um, what did Leah Williams say for that? She she struggled on that one as well. She went for Viv, and but she qualified it and said not because she thinks Viv dresses badly, but that she doesn't really care what she wears. <laughs> oh so God, she she struggled on that one. Yeah, not Viv. Nah. Okay, so who's the best singer in the squad? Best singer. Okay, I'm gonna go with Lisa Evans because she yeah. She she has a, a good little voice, but you don't hear it too often. So I'm going to go Lisa Evans on that. Okay, so you know what my next question is: Who's the worst singer in the squad? Oof. Um. Right. Let me think. Um. I don't know. I don't. You're you're killing me with the worst. The worst. Yeah. Right. Let me say. I'm going to go with Louise Quinn just because it'll annoy her. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And who is the biggest complainer? Who's the biggest moaner in the squad? Uh, well, we'll have to go with uh, Queen Fifiana. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And who's the most likely to become a football manager when they retire? Um, I would say, I was going to say Louise, but then I'm, I'm taking that back because... No, um, football manager. Um, I'd say Jordan. Yeah, yeah cause she's, she's doing her badges, her, isn't she? Yeah, she's just yeah, yeah the UEFA B at the minute. Um, but I'd say yeah, Jordan will definitely. I mean, football. Yeah, yeah, gonna go with Jordan, future England manager. Are you calling it? Okay. And uh, who's the most likely to cry at a film? Uh, Lisa Evans definitely she cries at everything everything <laughs> she cries just at if someone shouts at her or yeah definitely it would be Lisa I'll remember that um, <laughs> who's the best trainer at the club uh, yeah Kim Little 100% yeah um, I, th- I think everyone's yeah. going to say that Leah said that yeah 100% definitely and who's who's the worst trainer then <laughs> uh, worst trainer I'm going to go with Viv, not because she trains the worst, but if we were playing a five-a-side, she wouldn't do anything for like maybe five, ten minutes, and then she'd just bang in five goals. So I'm just going to go Viv because, yeah, she just comes up, comes up out of nowhere. 
Okay. Quite annoying actually when you're trying to defend. Them. <laughs> and uh, who's um, who's the biggest joker? Biggest joker. Oof. Um, I'll say people would probably say Jill or me, me or Jill. Dan Carter's got great banter, um, but I'll say I'll say Jill because she just okay. yeah, she's annoying everyone. And who would you vote for if you had to vote for one of your teammates to be the Prime Minister of the UK? Who would it be? Oof, um, Dan Carter, definitely. Okay. Oh, yeah, she's yeah she's doing courses at the moment, isn't she? And like yeah. um, director, like being sports director, um, yeah. and all of that. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I would vote. Yeah, I would vote for her to be Prime Minister. Okay. Definitely. Who's the loudest in the squad? Um, probably, again, Jill. I'll go with yeah. Jill for that. I think that's Love going to come out quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Loves the attention. Uh, and so who's the quietest? Um, Pauline is quiet. Actually, no, she's not quiet. Um, she's got Pauline. She's got Fran Stenson. She's quite quiet. She's young, so we'll let her off. Um, I'm trying to just go around the changing room here. Vicky, I would say Vicky's quiet. Yeah, Vicky, yeah. I'm going to go with Vicky for that. What did Leah say for that one? Yeah, she said Vicky. Yeah, Vicky, yeah. Okay, who who swears the most? I'll take that one, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what Leah said as well, actually. Did she, she, didn't say say, she didn't say you, she said, she said herself. Yeah, I would, I would go with Leah as well for that. I'm going to go with me and Leah. There you go. We Fair. swear at each other. So. <laughs> <laughs> Who would you most want on your team at a pub quiz? A pub quiz? Um, I would say... Louise is good at pub quizzes. I'm going to go with Lulu. Yeah, definitely Lulu. Okay. Louise um, was up there as well, but I'll just take... Yeah, I'll go with Lulu for that one. Fair. And um, this is another one Leah struggled with. Like, who's the hardest? Who do you think would be the best in a fight? In a fight? Mm. Um, I would say... Oh, I don't know, you know. Um, I would say when... Obviously, Tabby's gone now, but what would have been Tabby for me? Mitch. Yeah. Mitch is strong. If I was in a fight, I'd, yeah, definitely be... Yeah, I'd go me and Mitch. There you go. Okay. Okay. Um, and then the final two are, are about you. Who did you support growing up? Oh, yeah, oh, this is very controversial. <laughs> I supported Chelsea when I was growing up. Okay. Yeah. That's all right. Chelsea. Yeah. When I was, I'd say up until um, they beat us in the Conti Cup final. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, I I stopped supporting them. Um, yeah, a few. I think it was maybe like fifteen or sixteen. Yeah, I kind of supported them because my brother supported them, and uh, he used to buy me all the the shirts. So, okay, um, yeah, and then yeah. And uh, final question: Who is your favourite player growing up? And that can be male or female. Um, favourite male player. Um, I used to watch Damien Duff a lot. Um, mm-hmm. obviously with Ireland and when I used to support Chelsea because um, yeah he, obviously he yeah he played yeah that left wing position I loved Robin as well um, mm-hmm. obviously left footers so I think that's why I kept it an extra an eye on him and 
Um, yeah, definitely with, with Ireland, uh, Emma Byrne and the women's side. I, yeah. yeah, her leadership's immense then. And then to, to, to be playing our Arsenal then was obviously a dream come true. So, yeah, I'd say Duffer and, uh, and Emma B, 100%. Nice. Katie, yeah. thank you very much. That was thank absolutely you brilliant. Much. Thank you. Okay, joining us now on the Arsenal Women Askcast is women's football journalist Catherine Ito. Catherine um, covered both legs of the 2007 UEFA Cup final, but um, you know covered Arsenal quite a lot, particularly in the kind of early part of the 21st century. I was about to say 20th century there, Catherine, which would have done you a, a bit of a disservice. <laughs> 21st century. Uh, Catherine, welcome to the show and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tim. Um, Catherine, I want to, I mean, mainly want to focus on the kind of 2006-07 quadruple winning team and that final against Emea. But just to start with, um, and I had quite a general chat earlier in the show with Rich Laverty about, about you know, the Arsenal team in general during this period. You, you yeah. posted a tweet um, earlier this week um, about Arsenal winning the league in 2004 at Highbury and Rich and I spoke a little bit about Fulham um, yeah. and how Fulham briefly kind of well did more than challenged Arsenal actually kind of usurped their dominance for a couple of years and and then Arsenal yeah. won the league again in 2004 can you just uh, for the purposes of, for, for our listeners just recant what happened on the final day of that 2004 season um that season that season um so so sort of two two thousand and one, um, Arsenal won the treble, um, but but the, when they won the FA Cup that year, um, it was sort of the, it was they played they played against Fulham and it was billed the kind of professionals against the amateurs, mm. um, and they just they just won it by one goal. Um, Andy Banks um, is a truly exciting uh, cup final with an Emma Byrne um, penalty save as well. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. And um, and and that was the year that uh, obviously England made the Euros as well um, for the first time since the eighties. Um, so it was, it was it was quite quite an exciting season to be covering them. But um, as you say, then Fulham um, were, Fulham were, were still working their way up the leagues at that point. Um, and then they they won everything basically in two thousand and three. Um, and uh, so that two thousand and four, that I think that they'd gone down to being semi-professional themselves um, that, that year. They, they'd lost the funding because obviously um, the rest of the league weren't turning professional, which was what what was what had been expected. Mm. They invested all that money. So they, they, they weren't, they, weren't uh, they lost some, lots of players and um, they weren't quite the, the same level, I guess. Um, so that, that season uh I think Julie Fleeting joined them that season um, yep. in the Jan- in the January, and you had Leanne Sanderson coming through as a fifteen year old. She was she was quite something to see, um, and um, that that three way um, <clears throat> league was basically uh, Charlton, Fulham, or, or Arsenal could have won the league that that day. Uh, it was at Highbury, and um, and Ars- Arsenal. Won it. Um, but Charlton were sitting in the stands watching because I mean they could have they could have been presented with the trophy as well, um, and it was it was everyone was just on them. I think the men had just won the title yep. had they earlier in the day. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was just one of those uh, 
both quite exciting, um, uh, quite exciting sort of ways to, to finish finish off the season, I guess. Yeah, and kind of, I guess that that was kind of the end of Fulham, um, really at that point as well. Um, and and that's something Rich and I spoke about earlier. I, I wonder if um, you know. Obviously, speaking about this period, Rich and I spoke about Kelly Smith because kind of how can you not? I, I wonder yeah. if um, you could pick out a couple of other players uh, from this kind of early 21st century period that were in the Arsenal team that were that were really, really important um, as well as Kelly. Oh, I think um, in, I think it was like 2000, uh, Jane Ludlow signed for them. Mm-hmm. She was she's a massive player in their history. You know, I don't think that can be underestimated, really. Um, and then, obviously, um, in January 2004, when Julie Fleeting signed for them, you know, she was flying down for the matches. She, she was training up in Scotland. She was working as a PE teacher up in Scotland. She was flying down. Vic, Vic was um, picking her up from the airport, you know, bringing her to the game, briefing her on the way there. And then she'd, she'd do her work her magic and then go back. Um, so definitely, definitely um, Julie Fleeting, obviously. Um, I guess I think that what what really when when they won the quadruple, I think that season uh, Katie Chapman and Karen Carney were signed, and also I, I think we we should you know remember that Emma Hayes joined the coaching team that season, yep. uh, and that was I think I think those players they uh, you know you had Mary Phillip join um, she what she joined about two thousand four something like that. Mm-hmm. 2003-2004. So Mary Phillip was was quite a player as well, um, quite an influential player. So I think those those by the time you got to sort of 2005-2006, and obviously you got Kelly back as well, and you had people like Alex Scott and Leanne Sanderson coming of age. You know they they've been with Arsenal for a long time, and they just sort of came came of age during that period. Anita Asante as well. She she really yep. came through at, at that time. I, I mean, it'd be hard, it's hard to say. It, it was just so many great players came together at that point. But I do think you know having Emma, Emma Byrne. I think she signed about '99, uh, just when I started to cover them. And then you know Jane Ludlow, and then and then I think Vic just gradually built up built up the team. But that season that um, they won the quadruple. When when Emma joined, I went up to um, London Colney to interview her with Vic um, because I'd interviewed her, um, I think it was about 2000, mm. when she was still working at, in, as a, a coach in, for a local, you know, a local authority coach. She was about to leave to, to go to America. And you could tell then that she was, you know, really um, someone with a lot of ambition, but a lot, a lot of talent. Um, so, so I went to interview them up at Colney, and <clears throat> when Vic was talking in the interview about the quadruple, and I know that's, you know, it, it's always been on their mind since they were involved in Europe. But you really got the sense that, you know, he'd signed Chapman and Carney, and he got Emma, and you really got the sense that he knew that he had the team that could actually win him that, you know, that trophy that he'd, he'd so much, so much wanted. So. I think you know all those all those things combined. You know you can't just look at one player. Yeah, all those people combined, they just came together, and it, it, you just, he just knew he was talking about it, and you could just tell he knew he knew he had it. He had the team. 
Yeah, it's it's really interesting. You mentioned Emma Hayes. Um, actually, the again the, the kind of conversation Rich and I had were some of the players who've become kind of real legends of the women's game in England, who a lot of people might not even realise played for Arsenal, like Karen Carney, like Anita Asante, um, maybe even like Katie Chapman. But but Emma Hayes is someone we didn't discuss actually, and yes, yeah, she came onto the coaching staff and. Um, you know, was 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 a big part of it all um, with Arsenal. I, I kind of want to move it along to that that final against Dumea, um in two thousand and seven. What at the time was the UEFA Cup, but um, I mean, it was the Champions League and has been retrospectively recognised as such. I mean, in terms of the do- the domestic picture, um, Arsenal played forty four games that season. They won forty two. They won all twenty two of their league games with a goal difference of plus one hundred and nine. So domestically, their dominance was just absolute at this point. But yeah. when they went into the final against Dumea, um, it's fair to say, particularly with Kelly Smith suspended, they really weren't expected to win this game. No, I think they were they were considered the underdogs. I mean, I mean, you have to remember that they were still semi-professional, and Dumea were were a professional team. I mean, and also they had Marta, World Player of the Year, Hannah Jungberg, who who played in the World Cup final and scored in the World Cup final in two thousand three. Um, they had. Uh, you know, but the, Ramona Backman was was only sixteen, but she, you know, she was everyone. Everyone could see the quality. Um, so that you know, they had, and they'd won it twice before. So um, I think it was twice before. So yep. you know that they were undoubtedly the the um, the favourites. But um, you know, I I'd, I'd first um, followed Arsenal. Well, covered them in the in the UEFA Cup right, right from the beginning. And, you know, I'd, I'd been to Fortuna Hearing when they were in the first semi-final they were in. Um, I, you know, I'd been, I went to the, the Joe Garden match when they were in that semi-final. Um, and I'd seen them in group stages abroad and at home. You know, and I'd seen them develop over those years. And so even though they were considered the underdogs, you know, you, you st- there was still a, a sense that... Um, they were the underdogs, but you know there was a sense that actually they could do it. And I mean, don't forget they also had um, quite a, a lot of the England players who just qualified for the World Cup in that team. And you know, England England hadn't been to a World Cup for twelve years, and so you know there was that as well in the mix. You know that that was mm-hmm. part in their their psyche. It wasn't just that they were winners with Arsenal. You know that they, they, they had this other. Obviously, not all the team were English. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, a big co- a core of the team were so that those things from the outside, from from you know people who followed Arsenal, they could, they could see that that was that was a strength. But but I suppose from the wider from the wider view, it was that um, Mayor were the were the favourites. Yeah, and and so they play the first leg in Sweden, um, you know, which you were at, and it's quite clear they kind of set their stall out defensively, um, which was a very unusual way for this Arsenal team to have to play. They were used to winning games by five, six goals. Um, And then Alex Scott makes it 1-0 at the end of the first leg in the final minute. Um, of the mm. first leg and gets that away goal. Yeah. Once Arsenal get that away goal in Sweden, first of all, what, what were your kind of your memories of, of covering that game, I guess? Um, and once Arsenal came away with that away goal, you know, 
did you start to get the feeling that they would that it may be their year? Um, it was so tight. I I, I don't know. I I wasn't. I mean, I mean that the match was was they 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 withstood a lot, an awful lot of pressure. You know, the first twenty minutes was really tough, um, and it was very windy. I seem to remember, mm. um, and I, I mean that. Got, I, you know, to get a nil-nil, it seemed amazing. But then to score right at the end, um, and I kind of, um, I do remember kind of getting a bit excited when they scored because, you know, you, you kind of can't help yourself to, you know, you've, you've seen these players, you know, for so many years and, and you know that this is something that, you, you know, that they're so desperate to win. So, um but that you know that they had to they had to have them back at home and and you know one a one goal away you know it it wasn't enough for everyone to feel super confident I don't think mm. but um, you know that that I remember because I stayed in the in the hotel um, with them and and uh, you know flew back with them and everything and and but there was no sense of them you know they weren't acting like the job was done or anything like that. They were very, mm. it, it was all very, you know, that game's gone. You know, cause they, I think, did they, did they win the league in the mid, in the midweek? Yes. Yeah, they came right. back and won, the, they came back and won the league. So they still had lots to do, you know, they still had the FA Cup final to, yep. to, um, to see to, they had this final and they had the league just to, you know, finish off. So, yeah, and there was no, I don't, there was no sort of fist pumping type thing. It was just, wow. This is, you know, this is a great result, but I don't think I think it was still very tentative. D- did you not feel it was pretty tentative when you went? Yeah, yeah. So, and, yeah, yeah, and um, that, yeah, that was going to be my next question. And and the, the other kind of unusual thing about this as well is that the semi final happened, I think, five months earlier. So a long yeah. run up. Um, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was like November that Bromby semi final, and and so I get. Yeah. I guess Vic had a long time to think about it. But the the second <laughs> leg at Boreham Wood. Um, so I, I wasn't at the first leg in Sweden, but I was at the second leg in Boreham Wood, which yeah. I remember as ninety of the tensest minutes of my life. <laughs> And yeah. I, d- I really didn't enjoy any of it <laughs> until no. the final whistle. What What are your memories of that second that that nil nil draw at Boreham Wood? Uh, well, I mean, the, the crowd were absolutely amazing. You know, I, I, I first went to Boreham Wood in 99 to, to watch Arsenal. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of dedicated followers, but, you know, there was hardly, it was a very small crowd. And just to see that, that's, you know, so many people and they were all, they were pressed up quite, quite close to the, you know, quite close to the pitch. Mm-hmm. The atmosphere was just fantastic. Um, and I, I think I was probably like you. I, I just, you know, everyone was just kind of watching with bated breath. And and, and you know that they hit, what did they do? They hit the po- They hit the woodwork yep. so many times. They hit Emma Burns' face, I think. Yep. And uh, you know, and it was just <laughs> that you know that they really went for it. And you know, it was a, it was a very tense, a very tense match. Um, and when they, you know, when it when the whistle went, well. You know, it was quite, quite something, really. I think I, I do remember saying to Jane Ludlow, I, "You know, I can't. I may have, I may have, um, I may have sworn actually." <laughs> 
I'm sure you know, Jane wouldn't have minded that. No, I'm sure she would. <laughs> you know, I said, you, do, you know, you've done it. That's putting it politely. You, you know, you've done it. You've done it. You know, and she and so it was quite. It was quite something, yeah. And as a kind of um, as as a as an English journalist uh, covering the women's game and you'd, you'd been covering it for a few years already by that point, you've already said, you know, that you kind of felt this rapport with the, with the team and with the players. How significant did it feel for you for an English team to do this? And, and, you know, as I'm very fond of reminding people, Arsenal are still the first and only English team to do this. Like how, how significant did you feel, you know, in terms of what this meant for the English game at the time? Well, I mean, I think it. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's difficult because you know, I think they gained a lot of respect. The English game was was starting to gain a lot of respect anyway because England were, were had qualified for the World Cup, and you know, an English team had won had won this um, European trophy. But um, oh, I don't know. I, you know, we got so little coverage, really. Mm. If you think about it, you know what the coverage it could have got and it didn't um so in a way it was it was it was amazing but um you know I think it was a bit disappointing that it it kind of didn't get the the attention that it that it deserved I didn't think I didn't feel anyway yeah I I think one of the real tragedies for me and one of the reasons I've been wanting to do this kind of podcast about Arsenal ladies in this period is because even now no footage that there exists of the second leg at all other than the trophy lift that is literally the only part of it that was filmed it wasn't televised nobody yeah. as far as i know nobody recorded it so all of this really? stuff is is off of memory from from people yeah, like yeah. like us who were there and and i spoke to kelly smith and faye white about this last season and they both remembered as i did exactly what you remembered the point where i think hannah jungberg hits a shot it hits the post Emma Byrne has dived for the shot. She turns round, the ball hits her on the face and then goes out for a corner. Yeah. Um, and, and at that point, you're kind of thinking, wow, this, this, this might just be our day here. But I, I think yeah. it's, it's just such a shame that really, that all we've got is like a couple of photographs. And thankfully, the first leg was on Eurosport, I think. So at yeah. least footage of the goal exists. But I, I think you're right. It's, I didn't yeah. realise actually that it had not been recorded. I think that's yeah, that's that's quite a shock, isn't it? Really. Yeah, um, yeah, and it wasn't carried anywhere. It wasn't televised, and you know, it's a huge shame, really. Um, even for yeah. you know, a, a real lack of foresight. Um, I just just in closing, really, um, you know, talking about. Uh, what I, I guess a bit of a missed opportunity in terms of marketing the English game through having a European champion. Um, how far away do you think we are from having a WSL team, whether that's Arsenal, Chelsea or Manchester City, um, from repeating this, from winning the Champions League and taking it off Leon? Oh, I mean, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, we're, I think their teams are capable, definitely capable of, of winning it now. Um, Arsenal and Chelsea and, um, you know, Man City, I think that they're, they're all, they're all top, top sides now. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I don't think it's, it's going to be long in coming. But, um, you know, I, I guess I guess the women's game has just had to be patient. You know, you know, all the so many many years, even before this period. You know, 
the women's game was, was fighting for recognition. So I think it's still, um, it's still it's still a work in progress. But I do think that the, a team will 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 um, will win it. But I guess that I guess that that two thousand and seven final it just there's, there are so many great things about it that it just is an absolute classic for me still you know um and kind of as as someone who's been who's been covering uh, the women's game in 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 England for you know more than twenty years now, um, that that two thousand and six seven quadruple team in particular, is that the best side that you've covered? Um, I I think I think at the I think at the time yeah I think it it was because. They would, I mean, I, I remember a quote from Kelly Smith, um, which was, uh, you know, speaking afterwards, I know you've spoken to her, but um, mm. something that uh, when I was doing a retrospective um, where she kicks, and she said, um, Kelly Smith said that she looked around the dressing room and she thought to herself, wow, you're amazing, you're amazing. Mm. I wouldn't want anyone else sitting in that seat other than you. I, and they had so much belief in each other. Um, and I just kind of think, actually, you go through that squad list, and, and actually, they were all excellent, excellent players. And, and you know, they kept, they they played. Several of them went to America after that, and went to play in different clubs. And you know, it, it, they kind of people moved on. But I, I still think if you look at that squad, it was actually quite a remarkable squad. Um, but then, you know, you, you look at the WSL now and there's so many exciting, exciting teams that um, there's, there's still so much, so much to, um, to enjoy in, in, in clubs. So, yeah, I don't, sorry, I'm starting to waffle, but... <laughs> no, no, um, that's fine. Uh, so I think, I think that was a great, a great team for that era. Definitely, definitely. But yeah. I, do get a, I get a lot of pleasure from watching Arsenal and Chelsea... Um, Man City now, you know, you know those those top teams yeah. that now, but um, there was something there was something special about seeing seeing a, seeing the way Vic sort of de- you know developed his European um, credentials, I guess, mm. as 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 the years went on. I, yeah, I I think you're right. I mean, it's a little bit apples and oranges because we're effectively comparing professionalism with a team that was semi-professional um, and it's difficult to compare across eras. But I think you really hit on something earlier. And again, this is something Faye and Kelly picked out as well, that, that the team had such a nice blend of, you know, those really kind of blue chip experienced players, but they had lots of really, really great young talent. I, I remember watching Karen Carney at Euro 2005 when... I think she'd done her GCSEs earlier that summer and then went and played in Euro 2005. And when Arsenal got her, I thought, wow, this is, you know, this, this is what a player this is and and what a player she's proved to be. But I think you're right. I think that team was just, you could tell that there was something happening and it was at its peak and it was just before a few of them went off to America and you had these young talents like Anita Asante and Leanne Sanderson and Jilly Flaherty coming through as well, who are, who are kind of still out there and still doing really well. And yeah, I I think there was something special there. Yeah. And I mean, don't forget Katie Chapman. She really, you know, her and Ludlow really were God, you wouldn't want to play against them, you know, so much steel but also skill you know as well so um you know and Rachel Yankee we've not mentioned her um 
So, you know, Julie Fleeting, you know, just, just so many really excellent players. Absolutely. And, and Catherine, thank you so much for, uh, for helping us to celebrate um, those players and, and that time. I'm, I'm really keen that, um, that kind of people who, who perhaps have come to support Arsenal women or, or are just curious for the last few years, like really understand. Um, I think that this is a really proud part of Arsenal's history, not just Arsenal women's history, but Arsenal's history um, as one of the trailblazers of the English women's game. And and I really, really appreciate um, your perspective as, as someone who is their kind of front row centre throughout. So, Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. OK, thanks for having us, Tim. And that's all we have time for this month. Thanks so much to Rich, um, to Catherine um, and to Katie McCabe, of course, for their time for this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. And I really hope that that brought to life for you and particularly those of you who who perhaps didn't see um, these great Arsenal ladies teams from the from the 90s and early noughties. Um, and, and, and I really hope you got a sense for just how brilliant they were and and how revered they were and how that's just set Arsenal up for for many, many years as this kind of dominant Name in English women's football. I, mean, I, I really, really think that you know this should be celebrated more. Um, and I really hope this episode. Uh, I, I, you know, I really hope you enjoyed it. But I really hope that you got a sense for for the history of of this great club, which is a great source of pride for all Arsenal fans. We'll be back with another episode very soon. But in the meantime, thanks very much for listening and take care of yourselves. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.